Greetings and welcome to another installment of the Upward Call. We're on the Upward Call number 15, how to be content in every situation. I'm Eric Newcomer and I'll be leading us through this study of scripture today. In the book of Philippians, we'll be in chapter 4. We're continuing a series that we call the Upward Call. And the Upward Call is simply to be Christ-like. It's taken from Paul's statements in chapter 3 of this letter to the Philippians, in which he talks about the one thing that he really focuses on is, is moving toward the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And so with that focus in mind, what the series hopes to do is give us encouragement, give us focus on these things, that we may progress better in our upward call and that we may help others to do the same Well, join me in Philippians chapter 4, and what we're going to see this week is we're going to see that Paul wants to thank the church at Philippi for helping him, giving him material support uh, to support him in his gospel ministry. But he wants to be careful to put the receiving of gifts in proper perspective. And what we're going to see is we're going to see in putting these things in perspective, he reveals something about Christian character that we're going to find to be very important. And if we put it into practice, very helpful. And so uh, join me in chapter four, and we'll take a look at what we see here. Philippians chapter four, beginning at verse 10. Here's what Paul says. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for these words. We thank you for your servant Paul. We thank you for what you're going to affect in us today through your word. Lord, you have promised that your word will accomplish that for which you send it. And it is our will today to be aligned with your will. It is our desire to know your desires. And so, Lord, have your way with us and work in us the Christian contentment that we pray about and that we seek in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, an important passage in this, it's not merely personal to the church at Philippi. That's the interesting thing about these these letters being Uh, both inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also personally written by an apostle to particular people for particular reasons. It's powerfully important for us to know that the Holy Spirit intended for us to have this part of the letter and therefore to benefit some from it. 
And so what we're going to see here is Paul wants to thank the church, but he wants to put his thanks and the material support that he received in proper perspective. Now let me show you on the outline what that's going to look like here. Uh, what it's going to look like is, is these three things. We're going to see that the gifts are greatly appreciated, that giving yields a blessing, and that Paul is content even without the gifts. Let's take a look at the scripture to see that this is so. First of all, he says the gifts are greatly appreciated. In, in chapter uh, 4, verse 10, he rejoiced in the Lord greatly that they had uh, decided once again and been able to help support him. He even refers to the past in verses 14 through 16, where he speaks of the fact that they had helped him in the past, and he was very thankful for this. And so he says, it was kind of you to help him in this way, and even brings up the past, supporting this gratitude. But he does also mention that giving yields a blessing. Look at verses 17 and 18 here. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, Paul was more interested that they had this opportunity to give uh, than he was in actually receiving the gift himself. He is uh, bringing up an idea that he shared in Acts chapter 20, as he told the elders from Ephesus there. He said, quoting the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so he puts this then in verse 18 in terms of worship. He calls it a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And indeed, that's what it is when we give to the support of the ministry of Jesus Christ. No matter what it is, whether we give our money or our time and talents or, or whether we give our whole lives to the work of the gospel, it is worship. It is a sacrifice to God. And it is something that is very pleasing to God. And this is powerfully important because, you know, when we are worshiping, we are presenting a sign that we are in right fellowship with God. If we are giving to his work and to his cause and joining him in this work, then we are proclaiming that indeed we are with him and we are showing by our actions what hopefully is true in our heart that indeed we are aligned with him. We are in fellowship with him and with the other people of God. And not only this, but this idea that there's a blessing here uh, is powerfully important because if we look at Matthew 6.33, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about our necessities. That, that is the necessities of life, the food and the clothes that we wear. And then presumably connected to that would be shelter as well. Uh, and he concludes all this about these things. He tells us not to be anxious. And we talked about these verses in the previous two sermons because we're speaking much in this context about anxiety. And he says here in Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All what things? All the necessities of getting through life. If your first priority is the work of the kingdom, is in pursuing God and pursuing his righteousness, indeed, we can expect, and we are promised here by Jesus, to have our material needs met. This is powerfully important principle, but it's also an important one not to understand the wrong way. This is not some spiritual quid pro quo. This is not some law external to God that is over God that he must obey. 
This is God's goodness and his graciousness. God is not some kind of a vending machine that we put something in, we press the buttons, expect something out. Instead, this work that we do in putting the kingdom first and in giving to the work of the ministry is a sure sign that we are in fellowship with him and can expect to receive the benefits that the children of God should receive. And that would include the necessities of life. And so those are two of the points here that Paul makes is that the gifts are greatly appreciated and this giving yields a blessing. And yet Paul adds that he's content without the gifts. If we go back to verse 10, he says here, uh, I rejoice that you've revived your concern for me. So it would appear that at some point they did not have opportunity to help him. It says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. In other words, there was some point in the past that the Philippian church knew of a need that Paul had, but they were unable to help. Were they prevented by not have heard, having heard the news in time? Did they not have the funds to help him or the people or, or manpower to send to him? What was stopping them? We don't know, but we do know this, that at some point the Philippian church was unable to help Paul. And he brings us up and he doesn't want them because what could happen here? Paul is so very careful about caring for people, writing to them, wanting them to get the right sense of things that he understands. If I just thank them for the gifts, they might think about the time that they were unable to give and it might feel bad. He doesn't want them to feel bad about that. He wants to thank them for the gift. And then he wants to tell them, and it's okay that you couldn't meet my need at some other time. And he says it like this. He says, you were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. And he says, not that I'm speaking in of being in need because I'm content. And he goes on to say, I'm not really concerned about actually receiving what it is that you want to send me. I'm more concerned that you're able to send it and that that will bring you a blessing. In other words, that will bear fruit that will increase to your credit. And so Paul in every way is being so gracious here in the thanking them for these things and reassuring them that even if they couldn't help them at some point in the past, that their support now is appreciated and their support in the past was always appreciated. But right in the midst of what he's talking about here and clearing this up and wanting to make this clear, is an even greater point. And it's a point of this. It's a point of Christian contentment. If we look in verse 12 and verse 13, this is where he states it so clearly. He says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In other words, he has learned, as he says at the end of verse 11, in whatever situation to be content. And so this contentment is something, this is a Christian value. This is an aspect of Christian character that should be emphasized. This is something that should be modeled and it's something that should be followed as much as is possible for us. And so it is uh, important to us to study this, to learn this. The key to it is really right here in verse 13. When he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christian contentment is only available to you in Jesus Christ. That's why I'm careful all through the sermon to say Christian contentment. 
I'm not trying to help you be content without Jesus Christ. I hope without Jesus Christ, you're terribly discontent so that you will eventually surrender to him and he will give you peace and he will give you rest. He promises to take your burdens uh, upon himself and to give you his, which indeed are light because he then aligns your desires with his and you become evenly yoked with the master. But here he says, uh, that he can do all things through him and strengthens me. First of all, let me get this out of the way. This verse is very often terribly misused. It's taken out of its context. People will claim the verse when they want to win a basketball game or build a successful business or get the promotion at work or have success in whatever endeavor they're doing. But the context here is clear. Christ strengthens us in all things pertaining to godliness. The context is that Paul was doing the work of God and God was making him content with his circumstances, whether he had plenty or he did not. Now, it doesn't guarantee us, therefore, that whatever it is we desire to do, we can go out and just claim that Christ is going to help us with it if it's not something that he indeed desires us to do. Too often we have the wrong perspective of the Christian life. We think God helps us along the path of our lives, but that's not the way. The truth is this, we walk his path that he's marked out for us, and it is in this walking of the path that he amply supplies strength and whatever else we need. Now, can that mean winning the basketball game? Might he strengthen you in order to be victorious in, in a deal that you're making or your workplace or your business? Yeah, he may. But here's what we need to understand as believers. It not only takes strength to win, I think it takes even more strength to lose. What about losing? Are you prepared to lose? Are you ready to be there to get through it? What if an injury takes place? What if you're taken out of the game completely and now it all seems out of your hands? How are you going to survive? How are you going to manage to understand these things and get through them? So Christ gives us strength to get through affliction, not always avoid it. So whether you're finishing the home project, whether you're, you're trying to build a successful business, whether you're trying to get ahead at work, whether you're just trying to be successful in raising your children to have a household that is functional, no matter what it is, we see Christ in these things and his will and in the circumstances that we find ourselves in, win or lose, indeed, we will seek contentment in those things. And I'll explain what that means because it requires a great deal of balance. God wants you to have godly contentment. There's no question about this. It's shown in Paul. It's commanded in Scripture. We'll get to that later. You can count, therefore, on his strength to develop Christian contentment. So start thinking about these things right now. And contentment takes great strength. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can do what specifically? Be content. It takes a great strength of character and a strength of soul and spirit. So let's define what this, in, this contentment is. And let's indeed then see what's available to us. So I want to uh, bring you to our uh, definition here that we'll talk about momentarily. Uh, for this description or for this discussion, first of all, scripture is a most helpful thing. Secondarily, there's a book that I need to recommend to you, and it's by a man named Jeremiah Burroughs. And Burroughs lived from 1599 to 1646. 
yeah, that's right. I'm using a source that is, you know, 400 years old now. And so it's important for us to see not only is this a biblical concept, this has been a concept all throughout Christian history that people have written about Christian contentment and the value of it and the beauty of it and the importance of it. And indeed, he's got a short little book that I've given you a link in the notes uh, to this book uh, that will be helpful to you. It is a free download, a PDF version. It's only 60-something pages of reading, I think, and I've read this in the last few days and greatly enjoyed it. It is called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. Well, in that, here, here's how he defines Christian contentment. You can see it here on my left. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I'm going to look at this a piece at a time. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a definition for the word disposal because we don't use this word in that way now. And I couldn't find a single word to really well translate what he was talking about. So the editors left it as disposal. Uh, likewise did I. Disposal is what God is dispensing. It's what God is bringing forth to us. And so this is that we would submit to and delight in God's wise and fatherly giving over of conditions to us. And so, you know, this is important for us to understand and pick up on this. Puritans viewed all things as coming from God. And this indeed is the biblical view. First of all, it's easy for us to see good things coming from God, right? This is what we always talk about when we see verses like James 1.17, where it says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so, you know, it's easy for us to say, yeah, good things come from God, but what about the bad things in life? Well, we know that according to the Bible, all that is bad in the world is really a result of the sin of the devil and the sins of mankind and the curse that God put upon the earth in response to sin. And so we can assign then rightly the responsibility of the bad things in the world to sin and therefore to sinners such as ourselves or as of the devil himself. But we have to understand something very clear. God is absolutely sovereign. That is, he is absolutely and fully in control. And he knows everything about us. And he knows our situations intimately. And he cares for his children. He has the very hairs of your head numbered. And as the good hymn says, his eye is on the sparrow. To believe that God is less than absolutely in charge is to believe something less than what the Bible presents as truth. Let me show you this in practice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul was writing to a church that was having all kinds of problems. And he uses the word temptation here. But in the New Testament, this word temptation not only speaks of something that tempts us to sin, but can speak of any kind 
of affliction that comes our way, whether it's persecution or a health challenge or a setback of any kind, can be labeled as a temptation. Now, we might wonder why that is, why the writers of the the New Testament chose this word temptation to speak about trials and tribulation. They use this word because, indeed, every trial and tribulation to the person of God is a temptation to sin, that is, to respond or act by sinning or by a simple lack of faith. And so, indeed, every trial we face is a temptation to lack faith, to curse God in the situation, to say, woe is me, to doubt that there, all these things enter into it. So, yes, everything is called a temptation in this. But look at this in verse 13 here, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Now follow me logically here, theologically here. If God is able to provide a way of escape in a temptation, if he is able to limit the temptation to keep you from being tempted beyond your ability. Is God not completely sovereign over that temptation? Could he not have completely eliminated it? For to intersect something that is going on in order to limit it uh, suggests a power and omnipotence and omniscience of the situation that is so thorough that nothing could be beyond his grasp and beyond his ability. And so we have to see here in this passage that it is showing us that indeed God is sovereign in these situations. He knows how far we can go and he's doing these things for a good reason. God is perfecting us. He is working with us. He is strengthening us by walking us through the valley of the shadow. The mature view is that all things are under his control. There are no rogue molecules in the universe. Now, some people will complain and and bring up the red flag. Doesn't that hamper free will? Doesn't that mean our decisions are meaningless? Absolutely not, because we don't have the perspective he has. We don't have the plans. We don't know the results. We don't know the end of these things. And the clear testimony of Scripture throughout is that we are morally responsible beings that make real choices. We are called to make the right choice. It would be unjust of God to to offer us something that was not available. But indeed, he says, we are morally responsible to make the right choices. Did you today choose to listen to the sermon? Did you choose to go to church or not today? Did you choose getting out of bed, the the various things you had to do? And you might say, well, no, I didn't really choose those things. They kind of thrust upon me by what I have to do. Nevertheless, you chose to comply with them. And so it's important that we understand, will God not righteously judge us if we choose to sin? Well, of course he will. So recognizing God's charge, his sovereignty over all things, does not make him the author of evil. The responsible source of evil is the evil one or is mankind. 
or even specific people. But 1 Corinthians 10, what this shows us very clearly is he's the one who limits the affliction. He's the one to make a way of escape. Since he is the one limiting the temptations, the trials, making the escape, it means he's ultimately in charge. And indeed, we must first recognize that fact if we are to understand what Christian contentment is. Christian contentment, or any kind of peace as a Christian, will not be possible if you do not recognize that God is ultimately in charge of things. He knows the end of the story, and he's bringing it about. So let's talk about this definition a little more, shall we? I want you to see in this definition that indeed this is um, a frame of spirit. It's described as a frame of spirit. In other words, this is an inward matter of the soul. This is a conviction or an attitude that underlies all other aspects of our personality, our temperament, our, our affections that we have, our desires that we have. In other words, a frame of spirit, this is a, 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 an important line in the code of our operating system that God's going to write here for us in Christian contentment so that this is how we are going to approach things. And so this is an underlying spiritual matter. And because it's a frame of spirit, because it's described as that, because it's a spiritual matter, it means we're going to have to seek him in order for these things to be achieved in us. We're going to have to do it by the power of God, which is precisely what Paul gives the credit to. So it is a frame of spirit. It also says that the one who is content freely submits, freely submits, that is, to the will of God. And so this is uh, also very important that this is more than just acceptance. Uh, and this is not surrender. We'll get to that in a moment. It has to do with yielding to God in an instance, in a situation. It's not to lay down and say simply, have your way with me, Lord, whatever, you know, whatever happens, so be it. Uh, it it's, it's, not, it's more like to say, okay, Lord, I see the field that you have set, that you put me in, that you want me to play in today. So I'm going to take up my armor and with your strength, I'm going to get through this. This is important. Then we begin to take up godly action to deal with the situation. So rather than rejecting uh, circumstances, the contented one puts himself under the circumstances. This avoids the psychosis of denial. And this avoids any temptation to grab the circumstances and hold them up as an excuse to fail. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13? That the temptation has a way out. It is not a showstopper for you. And that is indeed how you submit to it. Now, once we freely submit it, then comes the master level of Christian contentment. And it is this, not only would we submit to the circumstances, but we would delight in them. We would delight precisely because it is in these circumstances that God stands ready to accomplish his will in you. Therefore, we should delight in any and all circumstances, knowing that God has set the stage for you to know him, for you to rely on him, for you to experience him and see him at work. We must therefore submit to the circumstances freely, but not only to submit, but to take pleasure in the affliction. Does this sound insane to you? 
Well, let me show you just how crazy the scriptures are. Look at Psalm 119, verse 71 here. It says this, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Many of you know Psalm 119 is all about the Word of God. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's about God's Word. There is a lesson there. And in this verse, it is saying very clearly, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. In other words, the affliction had a purpose. It helped the psalmist learn the Word of God. And it is worth it. It is worth the Word of God. It gets even more radical when we look at the, the nation of Israel as a whole. Look what it says in Ezekiel 7, 9. The Lord tells the nation Israel, who had tested God and disobeyed Him, all the way to the point of being in exile. In other words, God took them out of the promised land that He gave them. He's got them over there in Babylon. He sends the prophet Ezekiel to speak to them about their situation. And this is something he says through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways. While your abominations are in your midst, then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. I am the Lord who strikes. You know, so they were learning who God was. How are they learning who God was? Well, sometimes they were learning it through their afflictions. Now, he revealed things to them. They learned who God was through the good things, too. The exodus out of Egypt, the conquering of the promised land, all the great things he gave them while they were in the promised land, all the blessings he poured out on them when they were faithful in the promised land. But Israel was also learning about God. When they would disobey, they got affliction. And they learned about him through these afflictions. This is very important for us to understand. The Lord is good in what he does, and he is right in what he does. And he always has a greater purpose in it. Let me show you another quote from our friend Jeremiah Burroughs, our brother that we'll meet one day. He says this, he says, The righteous man can never be made so poor. To have his house so rifled and spoiled, but there will remain much treasure within. The presence of God and the blessing of God are upon him, and therein is much treasure. Let me translate that for you. In other words, you can't take from a Christian what their greatest treasure is. It's not possible for you to take it. The, the person of God, the righteous man, that's what he means by that, made righteous in Christ, the righteous man can't be made poor because he will still have the riches of Christ. He'll still have the, pleasant, the presence of God. He'll, he will still have the blessings of God. And those are things that are without price. Those are things that any affliction is worth it to attain it. Think about who this letter that we're studying is being written by. This is from the Apostle Paul. Let me get that quote up there for you. This letter uh, to the Philippians from the Apostle Paul, he was afflicted. He was in prison when he wrote this, and yet he was joyful. He opens the letter speaking of his joy of what God is accomplishing, even as his imprisonment. And he talks about the his joy in the fact that the gospel's being preached, even though some were preaching it in order to afflict him. They were preaching it out of envy, maybe not preaching it exactly right, maybe preaching against Paul. But nevertheless, he said, it doesn't matter. Gospel's being preached. 
He, he uses the word joy over and over in this letter. This is powerfully important. We understand how Paul thinks here because how Paul thinks is true about how God works. Let's look at another passage of his in 2 Corinthians. And this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Again, writing to this troubled Corinthian church here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he speaks about the fact that we have the gospel, that is, we have the gifts and the things that God has given us and this charge, this work, in jars of clay. He refers to us as jars of clay. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are weak so that God can show his strength. Do you remember the story of Gideon in the book of Judges where God, you know, Gideon's got like 30,000 people and he says, oh, we're going to have to cut the number down here. Send anyone home that, that fits these criteria. And they happen to be criteria that were in the law. But then he goes, okay, now send anyone home who's afraid. And now send anyone home who doesn't drink a certain way down at the pond. And, and he does all these things to bring the number down so that God gets the glory for the victory. And so this is what Paul is saying here, that he puts treasure in jars of clay. Us. We're the jars of clay. Why? So that we can show the power of God. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed, but not driven to despair. You see, in each one of these things is the out that he talked about in the other letter, the escape route out of the affliction. It's, we are, uh, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is very important to understand what he's saying here. What he's saying is that you exist and you were called and you were justified and sanctified and glorified. Why? To show the glory of God, to draw attention to him. He does this through us in our weakness to show forth his strength. We are afflicted to show the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. In verse 11 here, look at this as a radical thing. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Elsewhere, Paul says that his afflictions were actually finishing off or topping off the suffering of Christ himself. And how can he say that? Was the cross not sufficient? No, the cross was sufficient to pay the price for sins, but Christ continues to suffer in that his body, the church, suffers. Remember when Jesus first confronts Paul, then called Saul, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> and he says, who are you, Lord? <laughs> uh, because he didn't know who he was. And it was Jesus. It was Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? Well, he had met Jesus before. He was persecuting the church. That's the body of Christ. And it is exactly the same as persecuting Jesus. And so in a way, we are continually continuing to live the death of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, to be partakers of that suffering with him so that we can experience then the life of Christ and that his life might be displayed in us. 
Now, here's my question for you. I want you to think about the people around you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there anything you want for them more than them to take notice of God, for them to become believers? Isn't it your most precious, most urgent desire to see them saved? What would you be willing to give for your loved ones to be saved? What would you endure for them to be saved? See, this is how it works. We lean on God to get through all circumstances. So someone might say, eh, what's going on with that one? Why, he just went through this jolly mess and and he's looking good. That's the point. The contented Christian not only submits to the circumstances, but delights in them, knowing that this is the arena in which God will show himself. This is the tool by which he will shape us and bring himself glory. When we see someone, uh, when someone sees us going through great affliction and they see that we're not dismayed, that we're not struck down, that we are persevering through it, that we are even maybe cheerful through it, then they're seeing something supernatural. In Peter's letter, in his first letter, he talks a great deal about suffering. And he tells us to always be ready to give an answer for those uh, two people, give a defense, give a, a reasoned answer to those who ask about the hope that is in you. Why would someone ask about the hope that is in you? Unless they didn't see much reason for you to have hope at the moment, but yet you have hope. And it's not a blind hope. It, it seems tangible. It seems real. It's an expectation. Stronger than a hope. They see that in you. They have to ask about it. Christian contentment is this quietness of soul despite any circumstances. It is an evenness to us that we approach all circumstances with satisfaction, knowing that God has brought these things forth to do His will in us and to make himself known. This is a blessing of character that yields a great fruit of peace and of good testimony and of teachability. Now, I think it's fair to spend maybe a moment on what Christian contentment is not. What Christian contentment is not. Christian contentment is not a surrender to the circumstances. You understand, this is not a laying down and surrender. This is not a, oh, I guess this is how it's going to be. And, uh, well, what's the point of doing anything about it? You know, God's obviously seen fit that this is the way it's going to be. Well, God, God has maybe set the stage, but it's up to you to perform. He's expecting you. This is not Christian contentment. It's not a surrender to circumstances. Christian contentment is also not complacency. In other words, it's not just, oh, don't just get comfortable where you are and how you are and whatever comes by may come. You know, who cares? Um, there's never a call in the Bible to let go and let God. We never let go, but we do let God. We let him in charge. Now, we let go of it as far as the, the ability, as far as the responsibility. We have to see nothing in ourselves and seek it all from him. But nevertheless, we always have our hand to the plow. 
We are always those who are about the work of God, who are engaged with what it is that we have control over. And yet Christian contentment will give us the ability to not fret about the things we have no control over. Christian contentment is not complacency and it's not laziness. It is not just saying, well, I'm just content with it, so I'm not going to change a thing. No, it's the exact opposite, actually. It's I'm going to change as I go through this. God's going to have to change me to get me through it. I'm going to have to be stronger to make it into the next weight class. Christian contentment is not a burden. It is not burdensome. It is releasing of burdens. It is a, a great peace that comes upon us that we can face any circumstance. Christian uh, contentment is not a call to do it alone. It's important that this is not a call to be quiet about it. it. This is not an absence of complaint. You can make your complaints known to God. You can make them known to your fellow believers. You need to engage with them in prayer when you are in affliction. It is more important than ever to engage the help and assistance of others because everything that God has ordained for his people to do is to be done in the context and in the fellowship of other believers in Jesus Christ. So it's critically important that we understand that point so that we immediately engage with others when we are in affliction, when we are in difficulty. He has not designed us to go it alone. And indeed, that is when we often fall into a snare. And so this is also not an absence of emotion. Read the Psalms and you're going to see many of the Psalms start off with pretty strong words like, God, are you ever going to hear me? You know, God, don't you see what kind of thing we're in or what kind of a mess we're in? Can't you help us in these things? Usually by the end of the Psalm, these things are somewhat worked out and it turns more to a joy and a rejoicing in the Lord because they know he's got this. But nevertheless, this is not a call to be absent of emotion. It is not a call to come into church on Sunday and just smile and nod at everybody and put on a happy face and dress up and act like nothing's wrong. Be open with your fellow believers. Let them know what's going on with you, but pray with them about it and ask their help through it. Christian contentment is not any of these things. It's not a giving up. It is an, a way to engage our circumstances rather than just to crumble under them. I want you to read Revelation chapters 2 and 3. There's, there's seven letters to seven different churches, real churches that were in Asia Minor at the time. And each one of these short letters, almost all of them, have some kind of a problem stated in the church, but not all of them. Most of these letters come with some kind of a commendation. In other words, something in the church that's worthy of note that's good. But not all of them have that. But you know what all of them have? All the churches receive a promise to the one who overcomes. To the one who overcomes. In other words, to those that endure through the affliction, to those that get through their trial or their temptation, there's a promise to the overcomer. And it's different for every church. And they're really beautiful things, beautiful things that believers receive in the last day. And listen to this, listen to these things. They get to eat of the tree of life. They will not be hurt by the second death. There's a hidden manna that they'll get to enjoy. There's a white stone with a new name on it just for you. Believers receive, believers that overcome, they receive authority over the nations. They rule with Jesus Christ from his throne. 
They receive the morning star. No idea what that is, but it sounds interesting. They get clothed in white garments, meaning that their sins are forgiven and they have been purified from unrighteousness. It says that they are never blotted out from the book of life and and that Jesus confesses their names before the Father. That Jesus will make these that overcome a pillar in the temple of God and it'll have the name of God on it and the new Jerusalem written on it with Jesus' own new name written on them. Powerfully important promises, beautiful promises to those who overcome. And the beauty of this is is very simple. The beauty of this is that Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Jesus has indeed overcome the world and we overcome in the power of Christ, just as Paul said that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, so he does. Well, let's be very practical here in the last few minutes and let's talk about how to grow in Christian contentment. The first thing is very simply this. Understand that this is a command. Understand that this is a command to be content. Look what it says in the the book to the the letter to the Hebrews here. It says, "Keep your life free from the love of money and to be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you." So, this is uh, important that this is a scriptural command to be content. It's uh, shown in 1 Timothy 6 this way, as Paul writes to this young pastor, Timothy. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. You've heard the phrase, can't take it with you? Biblical phrase. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Paul expected Christian believers to be content. This is a command. It's said by Jeremiah Burroughs this way regarding the command. It says that to be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. So the first thing we need to understand is that this is a command. And secondly, we need to let Jesus Christ teach us. Why? Because Jesus Christ was the most contented person to ever walk the earth in all of history, period. He was more content than Adam because Adam ate of the fruit. More content than any of us because we indeed all have sinned. And we have this restlessness to us. And it shows in all our various addictions and all our running from God and all the crazy things that we do. We are discontent people. And we live in a time like none other that is pushing us to discontentment all the time. Some people call this the information age. Um, Some call it... uh, Some call it the technological age. I call it the marketing age. Because let's face it, ever since the invention of the printing press, people have been using various media to get us to buy their product or service. That's what it's all about. And the only time someone makes a purchase is when they are not content with what they already have. So the entire world throws hundreds of messages at you every single day trying to make you discontent. We have to spend more time than that with the Lord Jesus Christ to learn how to be content. And here's what he's going to teach you that you will learn contentment. 
He will teach you that He is totally sufficient for you. He will show you His great love that He has for you. He will teach you the secret of self-denial, how to take up your cross daily and follow Him. He can teach that because He did take up a, a literal cross and carried it all the way. Christ teaches contentment by self-denial. He teaches us that we are nothing, that we deserve nothing, we can do nothing apart from Him, and we can receive nothing of God without the help of God. Self-denial is what Christ did, and there was no more contented person in history. He will teach us the vanity of this life. You can read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon was a king who had it all, and he goes through the book of Ecclesiastes, and he pronounces vanity, that is meaninglessness, upon everything in his life except this, to know God and obey his commands. He will, Jesus Christ will teach us our proper relationship with the world. He tells us that we are in the world, but we are no longer of the world. We're told in the scriptures not to love the things of this world, and we're described as sojourners. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And if we are part of that kingdom, our, our citizenship is in heaven, according to Paul, right here in the book, or the letter to the Philippians. Jesus teaches us that he is the source of life itself, and therefore he is to be sought for all things having to do with life, including enduring it and getting through affliction. Jesus will reveal to us the nature of our very own hearts, how our hearts are deceitful and not to be trusted. We instead need to trust in the Word and the Spirit, and it is there where we will find guidance. And Jesus will teach us what is truly necessary. You may remember the story of Mary and Martha, where Martha was very busy and very concerned about all that needed to be done in the household to entertain guests and everything. Meanwhile, Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to him teach. And Jesus says, it's Mary who's done what is necessary. That's what's really needed. We sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. Jesus will also teach us all about his promises. He'll teach us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He'll teach us that if we abide in him, he will abide in us and we'll bear much fruit. Fruit that will actually learn to abide like we do. People, in other words. Jesus will teach us, in fact, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he will send the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, to teach us all things, to reveal things to us. These are the things that Jesus will teach you, but you must let Jesus Christ teach you in order to learn Christian contentment. So what do we do with what we've learned today? Uh, here's, here's what I want to suggest. First and foremost, this, that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. He accomplished all that is necessary for salvation. We cannot of our own and by our own works merit salvation with God. We must trust the Lord Jesus Christ who paid our sin debt upon the cross, who was raised again to life to prove that it was all so and raised for our justification. In other words, we can be made right with God because of what Jesus did. But what we have to do is we have to trust that he is sufficient to pay the price for our sins, that no sin is too great for him, that no person is good enough to do it without him. And then if we do really believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he was, if we really do trust that he can save us, 
We will repent of our sins. That is, we will turn from them not to do them again. We won't want to do them anymore. We will turn from our ways. We will turn to His. And yeah, we'll continue to make mistakes, but our attitudes will be different about it, and our progress will be evident to ourselves and to those around us. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. And then secondly, in order to really learn this Christian contentment, gather with the people of God. You've got to find a church home and people to gather together with that the Lord is going to work with. It is not good enough at a distance. It's not good enough to watch me, though my sermons are fantastic, I understand, and I'm very humble about it too. But it's not enough. You need boots on the ground where you are, and you need to join with people, and you need to fellowship with people, and learn together, and get together, and worship together, and support one another in these things. Christ will work these things in you through his people, through his word, through the Spirit of God. And He is with you in a special way when you're gathered with the people of God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we praise your name this day because of what you are doing. You worked contentment in Paul, who was in the most terrible of situations. Surely you can help us endure what we are enduring. And Lord, we pray that you do. I pray that each and every person right now that is aware of their afflictions, Lord, I pray that you will help them in it, that you will grant them the faith to seek you in those things, and then you will grant them the strength and answer to their prayers. Lord, I pray that you are known and glorified this day through all your people as they hear these words of Paul, as they seek contentment in you. Lord, may our peace stand out in the midst of a world that is discontent, in the midst of a world that is in chaos, May your people be marked by their calm, be marked by their love, be marked by their steadfast endurance in the midst of afflictions. Make yourself known through your people and through your word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for joining us, and I want to encourage you to contact us. You can uh, see more about White's Run Baptist Church at whitesrun.org. Or you can email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. I will answer those emails personally. I won't put you on any kind of a mailing list. I simply desire to help you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you have any questions or comments or even objections to what you've heard here this day, please write to me. Uh, it will be a learning experience for the both of us. So may God bless you richly, and I hope to see you next time.